0: Hello everyone. This is Sarah Longwell. I am here with my good friend Ben Wittes, and we are talking about the French village.
1: I, I see what you did there with good friend.
0: I you know, if I say best friend, it's a whole thing.
1: Yeah, no no. I'm, I'm I'm totally down with that because as I told you the other day by text message, my birthday present to you this year, Sarah, is that I will never compete in public for your affection. And so th- this whole thing is, uh, is, is going to be a one-sided battle. I'm just going to sit off on the side and smirk and JVL can, can, can <laughs> r- rile himself up into uh, 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 paroxysms of anxiety.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's taking it hard, but I'll tell you, I, I, uh, we're at a different, like, I, I think that there's a world in which, um, I might have, have enjoyed the idea of two men competing for my affection. (laughs) Unfortunately, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really work with, with my whole deal, but, um, uh, but, uh, so thanks. Uh, we're, we're at, we're at our episode two. Um, I, we got a lot of great feedback on episode one. We climbed the charts. We hit number 13. Um, and I got to tell you, as a personal matter for me, Beating the Real World Road Rules Challenge podcast was just a just a personal victory.
1: But I want to say that I am a little bit upset that something called Giggly Squad is beating us.
0: Well, that's um, my favorite
1: podcast. I, I don't know Squad. what it is. I, I don't like... Um, but there's just something that I sort of think we're doing something serious here. And uh, a podcast with the word giggle... In the title should not be ahead of us on the charts. So, everybody, tell your friends about the podcast because um, uh, we got to get ahead of Gig League Squad. That's right. I would
0: like to beat the Bridgerton podcast personally, um, but uh, but okay, but but we're thrilled that it's been that it was such an immediate uh, hit. And uh, today we are going to talk about. Uh, we did, we did episodes one and two in the first podcast. We're going to do episodes three and four today. So I hope you guys are caught up. I know from a lot of the mail that I've been getting, people are racing ahead, which is fine. Um, so Ben, just as a quick overarching take, what did you, how, how are you feeling about the show still? Are you more into it? What do you think?
1: Definitely more into it. Um, I'm, uh, repenting my, uh, uh earlier um episode 1 uh enthusiasm for keeping found babies uh after episode 4 where uh the father of of Takehiro shows up and is lied to in order that the mayor's wife can keep the baby. And then uh, she and the cop engineer his arrest to get him out of the way uh, so that they can keep the baby. Um, And so we've gone from the question of what to do with lost babies in war to how, how much, how actively should we use the, Oppressive power of authoritarian states in order to keep unwanted parents away from their biological offspring. So I feel quite repentant about having uh, suggested that, um, uh, at least while uh, the war is ongoing, hanging on to the baby whose parents, one of whom is dead and the other of whom is of unknown place, is not a bad thing to do. Um, but I'm, I'm very uh, um, uh, taken up with the various plot lines in the show, and um, I'm kind of amazed at how many important historical threads the show is dealing with almost immediately and sort of simultaneously scene by scene. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hooked.
0: Okay. Well, I'm so glad to hear it. Um, uh, we only have we like did, eight be,
1: five episodes to go. So I know, it, I was it gonna would suck be if I were like down it.
0: yeah. yeah. It'd be inconvenient for me if you were like, why did you make me watch the show? I hate this. Um, tough. So, so let's just, since you mentioned kind of the, the plot points um, I'm just going to hit really quickly, some of the top ones so we can jump into some of the, the deeper things. But in episode three, this is the episode that kind of frames up around uh, a German, uh, line has been cut you know the it's a phone line or a transmission line of some kind um, and the germans are upset and and so they go to to dr larsher who is now the mayor and they are saying and this is this is one of these themes that that when i rewatched it i was like okay this is something that repeats itself throughout the show and is actually significant is this idea of them telling him to make a list right he is to make a list of all the family men in the village and he doesn't know why, um, but there is a tremendous amount of fear whenever you are asked to make a list and put people, your townspeople, on it for the Germans. But this is a thing that he is asked to do. It's not the not going to be the last time. Um, and uh, so then uh, that's that's kind of the framing of one one central plot point. Then the other one is Marcel, uh, our communist, who is Doctor Larcher's brother, is asked to go to a, a secret meeting uh with the g- communist leader and has to sneak out to do it. Um the Germans have come to ask uh Schwartz, uh who owns the sawmill, to do work for them. They want him to to build help provide the wood to build a barracks. Uh and then uh Lucien, our young school teacher who presided over the strafing of the children in the first episode, um she is uh being sort of a an over a, a People are coming to, to hold her accountable for this and she is sort of forced into signing a confession. So those are like the big things that are going on in this episode. Um, what did you, what did you think about the, the whole setup of that they were pulling all of these men together, the family men and sort of punishing them for the fact that the line had been cut by making them go catch the perpetrator?
1: Right. So this is, first of all, uh, quite historically realistic uh, in um, in German occupations all over Europe, um, uh, particularly Western Europe. The uh, Eastern European occupations they were much more apt to just kill Slavs, um, whom they regarded as subhuman. Um, but the uh, idea that you know they would uh, ask or demand people to designate what were effectively hostages uh, and would, uh, uh, you know, would have sort of retributive executions against uh, village people uh, designated by the village sometimes. uh, What what they called reprisals was a a very typical thing that the German occupations did in a lot of these countries um the um wrinkle here so that this sets up very cleverly because uh uh the mayor L- Larche thinks that's what's happening right he's being asked to present names um and then in fact uh they're being drafted sort of into a kind of neighborhood watch to watch the, uh, which is essentially a sleep deprivation technique, to watch the the lines all night, um, and um, and so it is a a kind of harbinger of what you know the Germans are going to end up doing relatively quickly in occupied France, um, but uh, they haven't. It actually takes you by surprise that that's not what's happening. Um, and then, um, but in their minds, it is what's happening anyway, because there's this constant sense of menace about it. uh, they're essentially being conscripted into but that's it's a a a form of slave labor right they're they're being forced. Uh, to watch i suppose they do have uh pay for it in, in a very trivial sort of way but they're being forced to watch uh to do, sort of do German military activity at least on the defensive side but of course they are not armed and the real point is to humiliate them um uh and and then of course the 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 Plot twist to it is that the actual uh, destruction of the of the telegraph line is in fact accidental by somebody who was just trying to steal a ham and was using the uh, tele uh, that line as a as a foothold for a way to get out of the of the school and so the entire premise of both the Germans and the uh, the the French villagers, which is that somebody is engaged in sabotage, turns out to be wrong. It's just somebody engaged in, you know, stealing a ham.
0: Yeah, um, that's right. And I think your point about humiliation is exactly right. And they know the villagers understand this, that this is that everything that is happening to them is about the Germans establishing who's in charge here we are in charge here and we can make you do these things. Uh, but you can see the villagers kind of, and this is in these early episodes, what I find, um, I think menacing was the word you used use is, is that these are people who don't know exactly where it's going. And so they are trying to figure out in real time how to handle each of these things. So for example, Dr. Larsher, you learn something about him when he makes this first list because he puts himself on it. He puts himself on it, but he leaves his brother off of it. And so in doing those things, you know that he is both trying, he is both worried that it could be something very serious and therefore he won't put his brother on it, but he is willing to put himself on it and to go into it with everybody else, um, as well as the chief of police. Um, and the, there's this, this moment when the German, um, I guess I don't know what his rank would be but the but the the commander who's overseeing all of this sees that Dr. Larsher has put himself on the list and is very startled by that idea that the two men he's dealing with as his emissaries between the Germans and the town would put themselves on the list is a is like a shocking thing to him.
1: Well, and and he's I think impressed by it. He yeah. um he, you know this is where 19th century honor culture um, of a type that really does not survive World War II, has little moments, right, where, um, you know, the mayor of the towns, you know, understanding that you might be taking civilians says, first me, and the German officer in that sort of Prussian honor, culture, tradition. I don't know if he is he's from the Ruhr, actually, so he's not Prussian, but it's the Prussian officer tradition is, you know, stolidly impressed and sort of says, I didn't expect you to do that. But it's it's with a it's with a positive sheen. And actually I wondered if the um the fact that they were not held hostage and threatened, if you don't catch this person, we're gonna shoot these people. Uh, was in fact a, a, a like, a, like whether it was originally meant that it was going to be as soft as neighborhood watch until we catch this guy, um, or whether there was a, uh, well, we, we can't shoot our partner, the mayor, uh, so he's kind of called our bluff, so we'll fall back on this neighborhood watch uh, situation
0: yeah that's a good question the the other thing that's interesting to me about this episode is like the, the the ham um right because it it the the ham and the fact that there was the the person that you find out that the the person was trying to climb uh into go to, into the school because they knew that the school pantry would have food uh the ham finds its way to the mayor's table um and uh and and that's because you learn through this whole thing about the black market, which is something that is is omnipresent and is interesting as you like live in this universe, is that there is a a black market for food because you can't get food, especially things like hams uh and like meat other places um and so uh the but the the this is one of the 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 poor people stop having this stuff early but there is a constant um a lot of the people that we're we're talking to are are richer the doctor um you know uh, the the owner of the sawmill and so you can see there's a lot of little conversations about like the coffee um which they still have access to and like that they still have meat and the when the when the meat shows up on the table the doctor larsher and his wife like look at the maid like shocked that this is coming to them in some way that is untoward because they just are so used to it, I guess, still like, still having access to it.
1: Yeah. And actually the coffee example is a really interesting one because with the coffee, uh, which I don't think shows up until episode four, uh, the, some, I forget who, congratulates the uh, Larcher's wife on the coffee and she uh, explains that it's actually not coffee, it's made from barley, and so you see in the in the um uh, you know they go from sort of in episode three having coffee to episode four, which is a month or so later, having um a coffee substitute that is novel enough that they're explaining it to one another. Um and I think the the uh, that sort of picture of adaptation and also of privilege right that rather than simply understanding that you now do without it they' uh they have servants who are kind of like figuring out how to make coffee substitute out of barley is uh is a very interesting social portrait,
0: yeah. Um, so I want to talk about Marcel's meeting with the communists, uh, cause I think this was an, this was, I, I it was, there's a really interesting exchange, right? So he's told, uh, through a channel that he's got to, you know, he's given a code and he needs to sneak out past the curfew to go meet with this leader of the communist party. Um, and so he goes and he meets them. Guy doesn't, doesn't really participate in the whole code thing, um, and is late, uh, but the, the thing that struck me and I'm interested in what you think about this is that Marcel at some point, I can't remember what he says, but he expresses an independent thought of some kind or, or questions, uh, what he's being asked to do. And he is told in no uncertain terms that he is not allowed to question the party. Um, and what's interesting to me is that Marcel is very clearly somebody who is willing to be counter culture to what's going on in France. And he's, 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 uh, attracted to, you know, different ideas, but he's seen, he is immediately uh, falls back in line when told by a party leader that he is not allowed to question the party.
1: Yeah. So there are so many interesting things about that scene. Um, that is, first of all, completely accurate. This is um, the height of Stalinism, pre war Stalinism. Uh, Stalin has just over the course of the 30s, finished uh, essentially decimating the senior ranks of the Red Army. I mean, he killed just the entire senior officer corps, um, uh, which positions him rather badly for suddenly having to fight, you know, the Wehrmacht, which is only a few months off at this point. Um, So... Um, the degree of party discipline in, in the Communist Party uh, uh, was extreme, and it was always, uh, the closer you were to the actual Soviet Union, the more at the point of a gun it was, but there was always a, a, a very, very strong degree of of sort of understanding that the the party enforced its will by force. And, and, you know, this was a, um, uh, this was, you know, no joke. And, you know, uh, millions and millions of Ukrainians only a few years earlier had been starved to death, right, over forced collectivization. And so there's a, you know, uh, we, we, it is easy in this period to forget how malevolent a force the Soviet communist party was even in this period of time, but it really was. And the French communist party answered directly to Moscow. Um, uh, So it's a, I, I mean, it's, that is quite accurate. So I thought the really interesting thing about this scene is when Marcel is the subject that they're disagreeing about, which is Marcel's instinct that they should be resisting the German army and he is told not to do that and that they don't have a problem with the Germans. Um, the Germans are, uh, you know, mostly just workers like us. Uh, they have a problem with the Nazis. Um, and, um, but that it is not, you know, time for the uprising and that, that this is, uh, you know, between the capitalist powers, or the fascist, powers, from their point of view, capitalism and fascism were hardly distinct, right? But between the Western non-communist powers, Germany and France, they don't have a dog in that fight. And this is a uh, um, a really interesting and again quite accurate account of where the party was at this point, because this is the period of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. Uh, and for those who who don't remember this. Right before um, uh, the Eastern, right before uh, World War II begins, in fact, days before, uh, the Germans and the Nazis sign an agreement, uh, sometimes called the Nazi-Soviet pact, sometimes called the molotov Ritentrope pact, sometimes called the Hitler-Stalin pact, uh, and this basically carves up Poland. And it creates a temporary alliance between the Soviet Union and the Nazis that only breaks down when the Nazis invade Russia some months after this into 1941, June, I believe, June of 41. Um, And so we're now in the fall of 40. And so when the Germans sweep over, over France, the Russians are, you know, they're supplying them all kinds of stuff there is. And so the communist party in France goes from radically anti-fascist in, uh, in over the course of the thirties up through Munich in 38 to just kind of, uh, tolerant of almost anything that the Nazis, uh, were doing because that was the posture of the Soviet union and so you see this in this little, and by the way, there is a raging debate to this day between Marxist historians in France and all other historians in France about when the party actually began resistance um, and whether there was any organized not communist resistance activity prior to the Soviet, uh, the opening of the Eastern Front in in, in um in forty one, and the the communists have lost that debate. I mean, it, it, there really wasn't. The party stood down on Moscow's instructions against the Nazis, and so what you're seeing in that scene is this this little portrait of that, where somebody who's been sort of suckled at the the milk of anti-fascism and thinks of communism as the bulwark, so to speak, against fascism. Um, you know, says, hey, shouldn't we be like fucking blowing these people up or doing something and gets like dressed down by the party, which is in bed with the Nazis for a few more months to the everlasting embarrassment of the party subsequently, both in France and elsewhere um, and so this is the period in which, you know, when people forget this, but when the Germans invade Poland, starting World War Two in in Europe, the Russians invade Poland from the other side and they, you know, they carve up Poland, we think of it as the German invasion of Poland, but it's also the Russian invasion of Poland, and they they go to predetermined lines uh uh, because that was what they agreed to do. The pact was like, we will, uh, we will, you know, carve up Poland and share it, which and that lasted until the Germans, uh, you know, invaded Russia itself.
0: Yeah, and it's a great example, I think, in the show of where you see the plot and these people's lives being driven by massive external forces that you never see. Right. Like you only get the faintest. Uh, reverberation of them in the in the, the the things that cause our characters to make decisions um but you don't they they provide almost nothing of uh what is happening out in the
1: world and and the most amazing example of that that's ex- exactly right and i think that's so that you can watch the show without knowing any of the history right yes. but the most dramatic example of that in the show is the fact that the little town that the show is about the village is sitting on the demarcation line between Vichy France and occupied France and so you know it's like a like they never discuss it here's where the occupied zone begins here's where it ends um but um I uh, they do have this you know people have to cross it in order to get home they have to cross it in order to do business and so this difference between occupied and unoccupied france is this um uh is this ever present feature of the show and it's never discussed what the background to it is
0: so there's this great scene right that that, that really i think makes this point uh that i love where um okay so so one of the plot points here is that uh Mar- in 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 episode 3 Marie gets a telegram uh delivered by Schwartz that say um that her husband has been killed in the war um Lorraine is his name uh and uh but by episode 4 uh he shows back up uh he shows up he's alive and uh he goes to Schwartz's sawmill um and he needs to get over this bridge. And this bridge is everything in this show. Like this bridge, because it is the demarcation line. And so, so much takes place on the bridge. Um, but he goes to Schwartz. And so Schwartz now has got to get him across the bridge. So Schwartz is on one side. On his wife to his
1: wife, who's Schwartz's mistress.
0: who is Yeah, that's right. That's a that's the soapy part of this. Yes. But there's this amazing scene where, you know, Schwartz is, he owns the sawmill. He's buddies with everybody. Um, he's the kind of guy who can help a man while he's sleeping with his wife uh and and so he he they he's tell a friends. lie yeah they tell a lie to the german guard right so there's a german guard on one side that they have to lie to um and he and schwartz says i am taking this man he's my he he works for me and the commander needs me to do something with the wood and so i've got to take this guy across and it's a bone of contention but ultimately he is allowed to pass and then he drives 12 feet where he gets to the French side and he leans out the window to the French guard and says, I've got a, I've got a, a, a a French soldier here who's deserted. And the, and the guy, uh, the, the French, um, guard salutes him and says, welcome home, sir. And like kind of, you know, whatever. And it's just that, that 12 feet is planetary in the difference in their worlds. And that's what they're navigating.
1: Right. And, you know, in some ways that distinction was planetary in the sense of whether you're dealing with German soldiers or not on a day-to-day basis. In some ways it was not planetary because, you know, occupied France, even unoccupied France was ruled by Vichy and and they were, you know, a fascist collaborationist government. And so, you know, the question of... Um, like living in Vichy France was no bargain either, but the entities that you were dealing with was were French authorities, not German soldiers. On a, a, a as a general matter,
0: that's right. Um, that's right. So I, I want to talk just because there's this spans a little bit of um, season season three and or, or episode three and four, but uh, specifically the what's going on at the school with Lucianne um and and her her boss, Mrs. Moorhange, who is the head of the school. So these guys come and uh and and they basically like they they are you you they like browbeat her into um into signing a confession essentially that it was her fault taking responsibility and her job's on the line and it's funny because it seems sort of um small beer compared to what's going on in the broader world but for Lucienne, who is a very young woman i'd say she's 22 years old max um you know her job is is everything and she's very sort of self-centered um but there's this moment where uh Morehinge is in the room, kind of trying to protect her from these men who are questioning her, and just being a, a like a parental figure, or a, you know, somebody who knows what they're doing. And the men sort of cavalierly ask Mrs. Morehinge if she's Jewish, and it's just kind of thrown in there. And she says she's a little taken aback, but not. She says yes um, because she's neither. She doesn't think that that's like a. A strange thing to admit to. There's no um but what did you did you have any reaction to that scene? Yeah,
1: so I misread that scene entirely. Um I thought that the what it was setting up was their attempts to neutralize her in defense of the junior teacher whose name I can't remember. Um and by Lucien, S- S- sorry, uh, by by saying, watch it, Jew, Um, uh, because this is a woman who's, you know, uh, she's pretty blasé about it so far, but she is a Jew living under Nazi occupation. She is not in the free zone, you know, in the Vichy zone, which of course doesn't turn out to be any bargain either for Jews, but leave that aside for now. She's living in a town occupied by the Nazis. And so, you know, she's trying to be help her uh, her protege defend herself against. And by the way, Lucien should be accountable for. She takes kids on a field trip, you know, while the German army is rolling in, and and two of them or three of them get killed by a plane. I mean, L- Lucien has has some stuff to answer for. But um, the the but this is I thought what was going on was that this was a brushback pitch to uh, Mrs. Morhanj, you know, uh, you know, watch it, Jew. Don't, you know, don't, don't stick your neck out. Um, You know, there are Nazis outside. Um, It turns out, of course, that that's not what's going on. What's actually going on. And let's uh, do a little bit of Vichy history here. So the Vichy regime uh, took very little time to begin passing anti-Semitic laws uh, and this uh, this incident in the show takes place in October of 1940, I believe. Uh, the first Jewish status laws in Vichy were promulgated uh, under Pétain's signature on the 3rd of October, 1940. And as the show reflects, they uh, kicked all the Jews out of the army, uh uh they forbid Jews from being in the press uh members of, of uh journalists and importantly for this purpose the civil service which includes uh the uh, uh uh national teaching corps and so this is uh you know they come here to investigate a strafing kids incident where a junior teacher does something genuinely irresponsible and uh, what they've act- what they actually managed to do is identify the Jew who then in episode four gets a letter dismissing her. And we all think it's going to be the letter dismissing Lucienne for, you know, getting her kids killed. Um, but it's uh, actually a letter dismissing Mrs. Morhange, And um, so this is, again, a real historical event. Um, and what you're seeing here is a microcosm. The French Jewish community is one of the most integrated Jewish communities in Europe at this time. Uh, there is rampant anti-Semitism all through the 30s, gearing up all through the 30s. There is, uh, uh, you know, what was called across Europe the Jewish question is hotly debated in France uh, all through this period, and uh, and but. It is also the case that, you know, French Jews, since the, uh, uh, all through the Third Republic, were actually citizens of France. And, um, and people like Mrs. Morhange are able to be civil servants, and that ends abruptly uh, under the Vichy regime in the beginning of what then starts to be the Holocaust in France.
0: Yeah, I mean this is what what strikes me about the way that people talk about it on the show is when she gets dismissed from her job there are two reactions that are interesting that happen simultaneously. One is um that people don't know that she's Jewish and or don't care. Well, like they either do or don't, but they like definitely don't care. They also don't react with a kind of they are sorry for her. Yeah, they're
1: very sorry. They're, They're very not outraged,
0: sorry for her, but they are not outraged that this is happening. Like there is a theta complete sort of sensibility about like, oh, this is a thing that's happening. But it is a real shame because Mrs. Morehonge is lovely, and I like her, and I am, you know, and and that is a that is a temperament of the show that you see that is like, um, I, I don't know if it's below the surface because it's right there, but it, it you have to you sort of have to hone in on it to see. That those are both happening at the same time because people are sympathetic and they don't want it to happen, but they are not lifting a finger about it. They are not hugely alarmed by it. It's like, oh, yeah, well, they passed that law. But there's something – I'll tell you what What interested me more than other people's reaction was Mohan's reaction who thought – who she says something as she reads the letter and she's digesting the information. She says, I just didn't think. I just didn't think. So there's this sense where like she didn't think it was going to happen to her. She knows what's going on historically. Like she knows what's happening to other people, but she just, she didn't think they would come for her.
1: So this is a place where the American sensibility, I think real uh, on issues of antisemitism really get in the way of understanding uh, what the show is describing. So our American concept of antisemitism is, um, you know, People have prejudices. Some people have prejudices against Jews. So there are, you know, sometimes people spray paint things on synagogues or, you know, desecrate. Sometimes people attack each uh, Jews or sometimes, you know, they don't let Jews into country clubs. Right. So th- this is a very American way to understand anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in Europe is a giant structural centuries old uh, uh Approach to organizing society, and it's much more like the way we think of sort of structural racism in the United States. Um, And France, uh, starting at the time of the advent of the Republic, is struggling with this because in traditional, like traditional France, Jews are not citizens; they're not like part of the society. They They live there. They're uh, tolerated for certain purposes. They're also violently repressed for certain purposes, but they're not citizens of France. And the advent of the Republic, one of the things that it did is actually, and this was called liberation, um, was made. And, you know, when Hitler talks about the final solution to the Jewish question The Jewish question is, can Jews be part of a European society, right? Are they, will that be, should Jews be citizens of France? This is a genuinely contested question all through the 19th century. In France, it has this huge moment in 1897 because of the Dreyfus Affair. um, And it is actively debated the entire period between... Um, between uh, the end of World War I and this period. And so, you know, in some ways, France is the breakthrough country. This is the country that, uh, you know, Napoleon grants Jews citizenship. This is an amazing thing. But, um, and Jews are in the workforce, it, the, the state civil service workforce, and Morhanj is an example of that. But it is always contested. And so if you're a French villager, part of the politics you grow up with is, yeah, Mrs. Morhange is a lovely person and we love her. Um uh, but that's a separate question from the political question of should we uh should Jews be part of this? Should be we, we have Jews, they're not really French. Um, and if you look at the anti-Semitic writings of the period, um they're you know the word asiatic gets used about jews uh their their ancestors drove camels you know that sort of things things that we associate with uh in american society with sort of real anti arab sentiment that exact vocabulary was routinely used about jews and so it's perfectly reasonable if you're a french villager in this period to have Boy, I'm sorry this happened to Mrs. Morhange, but this is one of the political outcomes that they've always had a had a sense of. Maybe, maybe Jews don't belong in this society.
0: Yeah, and it's it well, so it's interesting that idea of French identity too comes up in other ways. And so in these two episodes, you, you there's two instances in which Marchetti especially, um, you know, talks about well, they're not French. They are foreign as a as a means for why um, they don't deserve kind of justice uh, or the truth to be so. So this is the case where it turns out that um, there is a janitor at the school of of for me indeterminate
1: uh, Czech or Polish, right? Yeah,
0: because he's clearly he's speaking in the subtitles he's speaking broken French mm-hmm. uh, to them, um, and they kind of and
1: his name they, is Marek,
0: Marek, that's which, right,
1: which is a. I, I, I suppose can be can I would think of it as as probably Polish, but could be Czech as well.
0: And this is a similar situation where everybody seems to know and like Merrick. He is in a, a sort of institution at the school. He's like the janitor. Um, and he but but he is because he is a foreigner when they are looking for somebody to pin the theft of the ham on. uh they, they do it on him despite the fact that it becomes clear through his explanation. And he does lie to the police. He lies to the police about how he came to get this ham, right? Because it, it ends up on the doctor's table. So now they have to figure out who, you know, Marchetti is, this is an important plot point, actually. Marchetti is now like moving in with the Larches with, um, with Hortense and, and Daniel Arche. Um, and so he he sees that this ham is there and that that's connected to the school, which is connected to the, the power, the, the, the communication line that's been cut. So this is all kind of happening and, and coming together. Um, but he says he found it in a bag um, or I can't remember, but anyway, it, it turns out that's where it came from, right. That it had been dropped by like the real thief, but they need to pin it on somebody and they don't have the real thief and Marchetti says explicitly he's a foreigner.
1: So And then Marchetti does it again in yeah. the fourth episode with the guy who's the father of the baby. And you know, he cuts a deal with Larche's wife, uh, I can make this problem go away for you, you know, a foreigner disappears into a camp, no one's going to no one's going to ask a lot of questions. And um look, France in um, you know, and Mar- I, I don't my names are you know, my French name is not good enough to say this for certain, but Marchetti I think is an Italian name. And so, you know, there are a lot of people in France now and in this period who have immigrant backgrounds. So the former president Sarkozy, Sarkozy is a Hungarian name um and um paris is full at this period of eastern europeans um and it's a giant commercial uh hub um and so it's it is not just jews it's also all kinds of eastern europeans who um are in france and their status is complicated um it's never as complicated as Jews status but it's it's a you know there's this uh you know the french were struggling with the ethnic purity thing too in this in this period of time
0: yeah but we learn a couple of things from this the the baby incident um don't uh, steal
1: babies people well,
0: the whole so- baby theft
1: thing just don't do it
0: well, so this is what's interesting, right? Is they hadn't like your the fact that you originally made a judgment of this this baby was better off with Doctor Larche and his wife uh, over the like
1: nuns who seemed to want to take the baby. Yes, and right. just- I, 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 my first reaction was okay. We have a choice: give the baby to nuns so that in the middle of a war they can try to find its parents who are in a different country, by the way, because the baby is Spanish, or wait until after the war and maybe the kid ends up growing up with the Larches. That doesn't seem to me a tough one. When the parent shows up and said, hey, I hear you've got my baby, uh, you know, that, that's a different question. That's right. And so Larche,
0: Doc Daniel, right, Who who is the doctor, who we have seen as a very humanitarian person, who we are starting to see as a moral person, who when things are in his hands, we feel comfortable they are going to be dealt with justly. The father comes to him first and Larche not only lies to him, he then lies to his wife uh, about who was at the door and just says it was a pest. Um, and you can see that he doesn't he doesn't want to admit to this. But of course, Daniel being Daniel, ultimately, he he says, he, he realizes this is untenable. Um, he cannot live with himself uh, if they just keep this baby while his real parent is out there. Uh, but Hortense and Marchetti, uh have no such qualms uh hortense has one one thing which is she is very much uh it's what she wants right and what she wants is to keep this baby she loves this baby uh and marchetti who tells hortense who's very clear that she feels like in him offering to make this problem go away that there is a deal in the offing that he wants something from her he assures her he does not But I think we as the viewer can tell that that is not the case.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, this would be what Trump would call leverage. (laughs) Um, And I want to note that this is the first time that the name Donald Trump has been spoken on this show. But, you know, Marchetti assures her that there is no ulterior motive here. And maybe at this point there isn't, but he's got something on her now. Uh, and, you know, you kind of know in that way that we all know how plots work, that that she has not heard the end of the stealing babies issue, and that at least one person in the world, who, by the way, is a cop, uh, uh, knows her secret.
0: That's right. Uh, and I would say that it's also clear to us, just as people who view things or as human beings, that Marchetti seems to like her, you know, he seems to to find her and she is she is a uh she's a, a th- throughout the a show not, a, much, a not 45
1: year old redhead
0: yeah i mean she is <laughs> she's she's not a she's not a bad looking lady right uh and 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 sought much sought after i think on the on the show but um so so we learn we learn here three things daniel ultimately comes around to do the right thing uh but was conflicted about it marchetti uses the information as leverage and could care less about who the dad is because <laughs> he's a foreigner and who cares. uh and that Hortense is uh, like adroit at navigating like she understands the social um she understands the leverage piece. she's aware of it, she calls it out. uh but she is also fine going along with it. she is looking for her answer, and that when Daniel comes back, she then lies to him. About the fact that they have that the whole thing was a misunderstanding a mistake we can keep this baby it's all great uh, and Marchetti now lives with them so you can see how this is shaping up to be a, a complicated thing but hey I want to jump to um the major plot point of of episode four uh, because I have some questions about it so a the guy, British
1: parachutist
0: the Br- well so so they keep calling him English. Uh, and so this, this, this a parachute, you see it's coming down and there's this through the whole, <laughs> through this, through the whole two episodes, there's a guy of like indeterminate, like a soldier. He, he, he actually, he's in the early episodes because he finds Marcel wandering around. This is a guy who we do not know if he is a good guy or a bad guy. We don't know what he's doing there. He seems to have been a soldier. They he keep panning to his tattoos. Crazy. He does. He seems, he seems off. Um, but we're still not sure like what his deal is. Um, he is taking Jews are he is taking some, a family of Jewish people to, uh, ostensibly help them cross, right? He's acting like a coyote of some kind. They get to some part in the journey and, uh, he asks for the money. They don't have all the money. And so he says no. And while they're bartering, he sees this, this parachute coming down and he immediately cuts off the deal and there's something about seeing the parachute, and we never find him.
1: out what happens to the Jewish families uh, at least we do not, not. In, at least not not. in this episode,
0: not in this episode. Um But what is interesting to me, right? so this they he goes and he finds the soldier, cuts him down off of his parachute, and is deeply invested in helping
1: him, and the guy has been shot and is in bad, bad shape,
0: bad, bad shape. So when they take him and they he starts to um help him. so then so well, so then this guy goes to the road. And then holds up Schwartz and Marie, who are coming back from a rendezvous at gunpoint, gets them out of the car, takes them to the soldier, and, you know, is like, you have to help me help him. Number one, when that guy talks, the soldier, very, which he only says a few words the whole thing because he's badly injured, but when he talks, he sounds American to me, number one. Um, number two, uh, I could never, ever ascertain the motive for why this guy wants to help this person so badly, why it's so important to him. Do you have any guesses on that?
1: I don't. It's always been my my assumption is we're going to learn something about him and what his origin story is in future episodes, who he is and what his, uh, what his motivations are um, and why he is invested in protecting this guy, but has no investment in, beyond the financial investment, which he abandons in the family, um, uh, I don't have any insight into. I was also a little confused by the accent of the of the injured parachutist, but he cannot be American. The yeah, Ameri- tell me why. So the Americans are not yet in the war. The Americans don't enter the war until uh, December of 41. So it's more than a year off. Um This is the period in which, you know, um, in your in your capacity as a as a daughter of a British person, this is the period where England stood alone. Right. Um, and, you know, the the French are knocked out of the war shockingly quickly. Uh, the British have evacuated a whole bunch of British troops from Dunkirk the battle of Britain is, you know, they're getting, uh, and, uh, I I don't remember when the battle of Britain starts, but this is the period when, when Britain is really on her own. The Soviets are not yet in the war. The Americans are not yet in the war. And, um, and, you know, basically the Germans have conquered all of Western Europe. And so there's a, um, uh so there is an air war going on between the luftwaffe and uh and the british the royal air force um but any plane that would be flying a paratrooper over uh an english speaking paratrooper or even any paratrooper over occupied france here is is a british plane um and so i think we should assume this is a uh a french Show that has a limited sense of the difference between English accents and American accents in English, so I, I, I know think it's watching, the best.
0: no I know from watching the whole thing that that's not really true that that's not quite true, but uh i i I just thought maybe you were going to tell me that there was like i don't know some some limited thing Americans could have been doing that would have made this uh no, this is I,
1: before even lend lease like this is before the u s is sort of quietly. Um I, I mean this is really still early in the war and you know the the um uh the British are the the US is is neutral uh, What about Canadian ne-
0: Have you been Canadian?
1: Yes. Uh I don't remember when Canada officially but can you could imagine Canadians serving in the Royal Air Force? I don't know that history at all. That's plausible, I suppose, Um, but you'd have to ask somebody who knows Canadian World War II history uh, about that because I don't know anything about it.
0: Yeah, I just – to me, it was both the accent but also, like, it's kind of of like a big, beefy guy. And because they have to carry him around because he's injured, you're, like, aware of how big he is. And so, like, I'm not saying you can't have big, beefy British people, but, like, every time you see them portrayed, like, this guy just looks more – uh closer to an american which canadians would be
1: yeah it's i i i don't know the answer on the canadian side um i think he um well, the best hypothesis that i could give you is that he's a he's a he's a he's supposed to be british whether yeah. and the accent simply doesn't work <laughs>
0: Well, in any event, um, I remembered, as I watched it the second time, I remembered being confused about it the first time. I was again confused by it and couldn't quite place it. And and I, I'm excited to watch the next couple episodes because I can't – I'm not sure we get an answer to why this guy, this other guy, who I think, based on certain other conversations, is actually and, – and he makes an admission when he's left alone. He finally lets Marie go look for help. Um,
1: that he killed and, his – and wife's he killed lover
0: his wife's lover and i think maybe his wife uh it's uh, he simply just says the screaming got to be too much and then it's unclear what happened there but there's a separate conversation happening between marquetti uh and we see this guy this this um i think he licking a marmalade wrapper at some point so i think that this guy is the and we also see that he's held in in prison he's in the jail at one point and he is let go once they have Merrick. Because they realize that that might actually be their guy. So, and and they also and have he's a, French,
1: which he's Merrick French. is not. And this is he's another, American. you know, he's pretty clearly your ham thief, and uh, and he's also, um, they want to get him out of there because. But,
0: but I also think he's the escaped convict. Okay, so there's because I think this guy. Is the French guy who's a little Looney Tunes? Is the guy who is who both the foreigners are taking the fall for? Because you hear Marquetti at some point have a conversation about an escaped convict from a truck about a month ago, and they say, "Oh, that guy wouldn't be around here anymore." And I think that he. So now he's telling us he's killed somebody. So I think he has escaped from prison, and that Lorraine. I'm not sorry. Um, the the Tikiere's father is now taking the fall. For him, that's who Marchetti says to uh, says to um, Hortense. There's been an escaped convict. Like they don't know who it is. It can be like that's could what, be he'll anybody. Go to jail for a while. Could be anybody.
1: So I have a question for you about the paratrooper situation, which is you had said that Larche is a uh, is a moral figure, but his reaction to the paratrooper situation is not moral at all. His reaction is, I thought, quite amoral, which is Marie brings him sort of under false pretenses to give this guy medical aid, which, of course, turns out to be uh, too little too late because the guy is gone and dead. Um, but um, when the doctor realizes what's happening, he doesn't say Oh, this is important. It's, uh, we got to keep this quiet. He says, you know, why are you doing this? The war is over. And he has now, which is a really interesting thing. Cause of course, to go back to the point we were discussing last week, they don't know that they're at the beginning of the occupation, right? They think they're at the end of the war, that they just fought a war. They lost. And uh, the Germans are here for a little while. Um, but he does not look at the British paratrooper and say, this guy's fighting on the same side of the war as we are. He looks at the British paratrooper and says, we don't have a dog in this fight anymore. And I think that's like, first of all, super interesting, um, just as a a reflection of the way people prob- may have appreciated things at the time. But secondly, it's not moral. He doesn't look at it and say, Hey, we're we're knocked out of the fight, but the British are still, you know, still carrying the flame. We got to help this guy, and so I, I was wondering how that squares with your, uh, you know, moral mayor thesis.
0: Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, I, making the the moral judgment, I guess, is um is something that should be left for much later. Uh, because I think that as we judge these people, ultimately, you judge them in the aggregate of what you see them do throughout this entire period. Um, I would say that generally, when we look at Daniel, though, in the show, uh, we look to him as somebody who is um, a decent person, who wants to do, who's constantly trying to do the right thing. And I think we trust That he is not a bad character, that he's not trying to hurt anyone. But there is – this is one of the first times that you see Daniel's – hey, I don't want to be involved. Like, don't involve me. Like, he wants to – when he is told that there is a hurt person, his instinct is to go help the hurt person because he's a doctor and this is what drives him. He is a humanist. But when he, it's clear that he has been put in a perilous situation to do this. That is political in any way, right? I mean, this is the the, the difference between Daniel and his brother. His brother is hyper political. Everything that his brother thinks about is through the lens of politics, and Daniel is the mirror opposite, where he wants nothing to do with politics. And there is a point, right? And I think this is one of the ways in which it reflects our current political culture, where trying to maintain neutrality. At a moment of moral urgency becomes a problem, makes you not a good person or can make you not a good person uh, when you just want to stay out of it. And I know lots of people in this moment or in the last few years who have wanted to say, "Hey, I'm just over here maintaining my principles and and I'm going to adhere to that. That doesn't mean that I need to join potentially with a different political party to help beat back these forces that yes, I acknowledge are horrible um but but you know the, even is... if
1: it means I might not get my judges
0: that's right, that's right, that's right and so so Daniel's apolitical neutrality is an incredibly interesting. Um, thing throughout the show, and it is in that conversation you see some of the first elements of it. Um, hey, we're starting to get close to time, and I just want to throw a couple other things at you um that are kind of observations. So one is so this is obviously a television show that has a lot of soapy elements to it, too, right? So there's um there are a lot of lot of lot of affairs going on, people getting smitten with each other. But I wanted to say that one of the things that I liked about the show as someone who doesn't love soapy shows myself. Is that the things that in like a soap opera would be absurd, like a person presumed dead showing up alive, um, and would make you be like, I can't willingly would make someone like me be like, I can't willingly suspend my disbelief for this. The, the context of the war makes the idea that like, uh, taking a baby and wanting to keep it, um, you know, that Schwartz and Marie would be having an affair, uh, that her husband, who presumed dead, shows up again. Those seem like totally plausible, totally, believable. totally,
1: totally believable, believable now. So the number of displaced people during World War Two, it was literally in the tens of millions. Um, and the number was so vast that there are uh, that. You know, people had no idea for years whether spouses, brothers, sisters, children were still alive or not. And there are still, you know, there are still, uh, uh, like, these mysteries sometimes still get unraveled in ways that are... uh, So the idea that in the chaotic weeks and months after the fall of France uh somebody uh gets an erroneous telegram that her husband has been killed that there's just nothing unbelievable about that um and by the way um uh you know the baby stealing that that happened a lot uh a lot of for example this is a different context but a lot of jews hid babies with catholic families in poland and in france it was, it was like this happened uh and what happened when you did that you know you're you're maybe you survive the war maybe you don't uh but the kid who then a devout catholic family does what you would do with any kid uh that is in your house which is you have it baptized um and the kid survives the war and then some relative years later uh uh wants the kid. Uh these cases happened a lot. Um so the idea that there's a baby stealing theme and uh and a uh dead person who's not really dead theme, these are not implausible at all. And by the way, uh, affairs in small towns more the norm than the exception. Uh, Big towns yeah, well- too.
0: Yeah, well, we didn't, uh, we didn't, we didn't get into Schwartz too much, but, but Schwartz is, um, to the extent that, that Daniel is sort of, and we could talk about him more, but to the extent that Daniel is sort of like the apolitical, um, uh, but also like doesn't want to get involved. Then there's Schwartz who seems sort of minorly conflicted about doing work for the Germans, but his wife is like, you will absolutely do this. You can see he is driven. This is a man driven by, uh, Conquest in many ways, both business and carnal, um, and uh, his his moral compass doesn't seem to be firmly locked. Yeah, hard. so
1: I am a little bit troubled by the portrayal of Schwartz, and the reason is that there are some actual anti-Semitic stereotypes uh, being traded in here. So, if we assume for a moment that Schwartz is a relatively recently converted Jew um which is still my working hypothesis about him uh let us note that he is a petit bourgeois uh, or not that petit um he is um uh he has a factory uh he is lascivious uh he will do business with anybody to make a buck uh and he's not really very scrupulous and you got some trading in some uh some pretty um and by the way he'll convert to christianity to con to to pass as if that's in fact what's happened and so i actually find his character a little bit troubling and by the way uh he lusts after the married pure french girl um which is of course another um uh you know the the Jews, Jews. They're 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 coming for your Aryan daughters thing. Um, and so there's a there's some like less than well thought out decisions I think about the way he is portrayed. But all of that is predicated on my theory that he is who I think he is, which we have to wait and see whether that's right.
0: We will have to wait and see. I think one thing we can agree on, though, is that Marie is not that happy when her husband shows up
1: again. No. Uh, <laughs> and i, I got to say, he he does not make a great case for himself. He's, he sure doesn't. Uh, he's, I, I wasn't too happy to see him
0: either. <laughs> uh, okay. With that, we will wrap up our second episode of Le Podcast. Ben Wittes, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend. Nous nous aimions bien
1: tendrement. Et puis